Hey, I want to read to you a passage in Philippians chapter 2. It's powerful. It's a super famous passage, but let me, it's so important for you and me to hear it today. Let, let, me, let me read it, and you follow the words. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than ourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. Like there's a bunch of don'ts in there. When we start with don'ts, it kind of weirds us out. Sometimes I need you to get with that saying. The Lord in his sovereignty has Paul writing these words to set you free. When he says, don't be selfish, he's not saying that to hold you back from something. He's saying that to set you free from something. He wants to give you the rights that he is given through Jesus's son on the cross so that you could be yourself, so you could relax in the image of God that you were created and you could relax because you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and be yourself. And when uh, you're not selfish, you're not always looking at self, you're able to take who he made you and give it away to others. I love these verses 5 through 11. Let me read them and you listen to them. Try to listen with all your concentration and let, let them just wash over you because they are, it's so soothing to watch our God in action. You must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. We spent half the year in Mark watching Jesus move and walk and talk. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. We're talking about the king of glory, the one who when he walks anywhere in heaven, the angels are shouting and singing his name with their hands in the air or their heads bowed. He overwhelms people every time he's in their presence. And it says that he did not regard equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges And he took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being and he appeared in human form and he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Man, if you've been to church much, you've heard the story of Christmas and him being born, him being all God and yet born into this world in a manger And then certainly, if you've been to church at all, you've heard where he ended. He ended on a cross. We're talking about the king of glory, completely humbled. A man who knew exactly who he was as the son of God, who was completely confident, never had a doubt about himself, completely gave himself away. All the way to giving up his life. All in an effort to please his father all in the effort to be obedient to the plan of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to set us free because he loved us and he wanted to free us from this very selfishness inside of us. He wanted to set us free and let us depend on him for our identity. Look how God rewarded him. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of the highest honor and he gave him a name above all other names. 
In the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in he- on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every t- tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was this movement where Jesus, Jesus, the hero of the Bible, Right, He's the one that all the Old Testament points toward and all the New Testament talks about. And most of it looks back at his life on this planet. He's the hero. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that we wanted to solve all the problems. And here he is, and he comes in humbly. Satan would be, uh, he'd be the villain when uh, we watch Lucifer cast out of heaven and him establish his rule on this earth as the prince of the air. There's this ongoing effort to try to pull some of that glory from God for himself. And we see the story unfold from from the very beginning all the way through history. We see him in the Garden of Eden just, just trying to get a little piece of that, a little piece of that glory. The Bible captures that sometimes in little, little tight packages. And in this book of Esther, where we're focusing on the hero, Esther, the queen, she's this resilient lady. And we, we're going to talk for weeks about different characters in the Bible that are resilient. They get back up. They bounce back. Sometimes they fail. They're real people, but they continuously recenter themselves around Jesus. She's the hero in in the story that we've been telling in this book named after her, Esther. And there's a villain. His name is Haman. And is he ever consumed with his need for respect? Let let me just remind you how the story works. Chapter 1, we get introduced to the king Xerxes. He needs a queen in chapter two, and Esther is chosen as his queen. Long beauty contest. She's Miss Israeli, right? He doesn't know that. She's holding back the fact that she's a Jew, but she gets chosen among all the other women to be, be his queen. Complicated story. You can read it, chapter two, if you want to. At the end of that chapter, we meet Robin Hood. <laughs> Robin, Robin Hood, Robin. Uh, Mordecai, her, her nephew, I mean, her, her uh, cousin who raised her. And so we get introduced to this guy named Mordecai and just a quick introduction. And then we get introduced to Haman. And Haman, the antagonist, the villain, the one who wants to uh, completely destroy the Jewish people. We learn about him in chapter three and four. Talked a lot about it last week. Just to remind you, he's, he's promoted to, the, to be the prime minister of the land. And when he comes out of the palace and passes Mordecai, who is related to Esther, Mordecai will not bow to him. The king has commanded that everybody bow to the prime minister. Culturally, people bow to each other all the time. In our culture in the South, I grew up, you don't say yes, man, my hand would get popped as a child because that's just how manners work. And so Bowing was no big deal, but for whatever reason, and we would have to assume that there was a problem with Haman, Mordecai would not bow. And it just just stuck in Haman's craw. It just messed with him all the time. He, He dwelt on it because he could not stand the fact that this one simple man didn't give him respect. But we live in a land where people want some respect. 
uh, from a gang member wanting respect to the valedictorian wanting respect to parents in our, in our towns constantly wanting respect for their kids, always complaining about someone somewhere that robbed their kids is just this desire among certainly this nation founded on the Declaration of Independence to protect our rights and stand up for our stuff, and I want to be respected. Haman was full of that. And so he engineered, now, now let's get this right. Haman is the first Hitler, right? He, he is engineering a plan, not only to take out Mordecai, who won't bow to him, but in the passages in Esther, we hear that Mordecai's a Jew five times. Mordecai's a Jew. Not only does he want to take out Mordecai, he wants to take out all of his people. If you know how the Bible works, the Jews and the Agagites, which is uh, where Haman comes from, already hated each other. So you, have, you certainly have some racial tension there that goes all the way back to King Saul uh, in, in the earlier passages in the Old Testament. And here it is. It's, it's just pulled into a flame as Haman begins to orchestrate this plan to take out the Jews. So he basically has the king declare a purge day where uh, the folks in the kingdom of Persia could at will on that purge day take the life of any Jewish person and then take all their stuff. So it would be legal for you to take your Jewish neighbor's life and take his house and his car and all of his assets. They'd be yours if you killed him. It was his ingenious plan, his villainous, ingenious plan to wipe out the people of God. As we pick up chapter five, Esther and Mordecai in chapter four developed the plan to go before the king and plead the case of the Jews. Now, this is a dangerous plan. As a matter of fact, as Esther considered her role of going into King Xerxes, she actually, famous line, she says, if I die, I die. If I go into his presence and he decides to take my life because he's in a bad mood today, then, then I die. But I'm going to do this in obedience to God and for my people. So the people fast for three days. The Jewish folks fast for three days. And at the end of the three days, Esther makes her way into the presence of the king. What you're looking for if you're coming into the presence of the king is that he offers you his scepter. If he doesn't, it's going to be a short day. You're about to lose your life. Esther comes in. If you know the story well, she comes into the king's presence. I always, I don't know how your imagination works. I imagine her having her makeup perfect. Right. Like she's looking as good as she can possibly look. She's got the scripture says she's got on her royal robes. I have no idea what they look like, but I imagine she looked good in them. And she's walking into his presence with fear in obedience to a God that's not mentioned in the passage and for her people. And she walks into his presence to see if if he will affirm her being there. He offers the scepter. And she comes and asks this simple question. I, I love the femininity in chapter five. I hate it that our world right now is fighting against a man being a man and a woman being a woman. We've had some horrible days in history of, show, of chauvinism. But I'm not real sure feminism is solving any of that problem. It's, it's, it's this weird pride in, in, in 
the God, uh, not in the God, but in what he made us. And then, then there's all this confusion about it. It's driving me nuts right now. Maybe it is you too. She embraces who she is, made in the image of God as, as a female, and comes into this presence looking beautiful. And then she speaks to him in a way that really prepares him to be spoken to about this crisis for the Jewish people. So Esther comes in and and her first line is great. She says, hey, I really want to invite you and Haman to a lunch. That, that's, that's all I want. The king says, I don't know if you've ever heard this language in the Bible. He says, he's so pleased with her when she comes in. He says, hey, whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. Now, he doesn't literally mean up to half of my kingdom. Sometimes come by, somebody will come to the house. I go, you can have anything you, you want. I don't mean they can take my Honda, right? I mean, we're happy to share our stuff with you. So she says to the king, hey, I want you and Haman to meet me for lunch today. I got a luncheon prepared. I want you to come and enjoy. And so Xerxes and Haman come to this meal, and you got to know our boy Haman, he thinks he has made it. <laughs> if this was a movie, it'd be a comedy because he thinks he's made. All of a sudden, he, in the presence of the king, is starting to feel like he is the king, and he's walking like he's the king, and he's sitting with the queen, which never happens culturally, even historically. Very rarely did Persian kings allow somebody in the presence of their queen, and so he's sitting at the table for three, sitting there enjoying, I don't know what they ate, enjoying a great meal, and probably like looking over at the queen every while she looks at him with a smile. It's just this fun 50 minutes with the king and queen. And on his way out of the palace, he sees our boy Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't bow, and Haman flips. Let me read, read you this passage out of chapter 5. This is verse 9. Haman was a very happy man when he left the banquet, but when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. Think Haman is full of it? <laughs> However, he restrained himself and went home. And Haman gathered together his friends and Zareph, his wife. And he boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. And he bragged about the honors of the king that, he, that the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. You got any friends like this? They name drop and they tell you stories about how they ran a 3-8 when they were in high school. It's just, it's comical to watch. And for the reader, for the ancient reader, they're reading this story and they're feeling this tension for the Jewish people and certainly the danger that Esther's in. And, and here's Haman. He's just, he is just talking so much smack. You're annoyed as a reader. You want to go get him. You know the movie, when you're watching it and the villain continues to grow in power, you want to jump into the screen and handle it or do something, somebody do something. Then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther, again, name drop, invited only me and the king himself to the banquet. She prepared for us. And she's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate. So Queen Esther, in her uh, genius, invited them to a meal, kind of buttered them up, pun intended, and then invited them to another meal. Often wise to, to push something out and, and really time it just right. And she 
feeling out the moment, perhaps, perhaps God spoke in and told her to wait a day. Perhaps she just really understood the situation based on wisdom and wanted to wait a day. Perhaps something happened at the lunch where she felt like, hey, this isn't the time to tell the king about what Haman's done. So she pushes it off a day and, and it's beautiful story writing, right? So Haman's wife, Zeresh, very sweet lady, as you're about to see, and all of his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the the king. Just straight up evil. His wife says, hey, how about getting, don't just get him impaled, put him on a 75-foot pole so that he'll be up above all the trees and everybody around can look up and see what happens to somebody that won't bow down to your greatness, Haman. Just feeding his need for respect. As you read the story, again, Esther really lays out much more like a comedy you, you, you feel this guy being promoted by the king, but also promoting on his inside, trying his best to be somebody, still needing his wife and friends to affirm him in that position and just can't take it that Mordecai won't. So if Mordecai were Batman, uh, actually, if Esther's Batman and Mordecai was Robin, Robin has been captured by the Joker And now as you read the story, you're waiting for Esther to come rescue. But I want to remind you who Haman is. Haman is this egotistical, broken man that is just wreaking destruction all around him. You know the type. and Perhaps when you read this, if you read it real honestly, like I had to this week, I had to look at myself. I had to ask these questions about how bad do I need respect? About how much does that drive me? When when I read that passage from Philippians, I read it because some of you need to be freed from pride because it's killing you. It's rotting your insides out to the point where Haman has got to hang a man on a 75-foot pole and pale him horrible death for this man, just simply to protect his ego. Some of us can absolutely not afford to fail or be wrong in any way because we're so connected to our identity, being connected to our pride. Let me, let me just walk you through a few things that I heard from Tim Keller this week that I, that, that worked me and I hope they'll work you. They were healthy for me to hear. He said that uh, pride produces fools. Not real easy to look in the mirror and see a fool. He said pride produces fools because it keeps you from learning. You can't even allow somebody to know more than you. So you can't pick up a book. You can't have a friend speak truth in your life because you can't afford to be wrong. And so there's no way for you to take another step. There's no way to get help from anybody to help you take another step. So then you, you're just a fool. Our families at Radius are, uh, man, we, we know as a whole there's lots of struggles right now. 
whatever COVID did, it made us look at each other a little bit more and our marriages have been tested. And oftentimes in marriage, what happens is pride wells up in a husband and wife and, and there's conflict. My house, we have conflict fairly regularly. And, and when that conflict goes down, there's this question, will somebody say they're sorry? Is, is one of the two of us willing to say I was wrong? Is somebody willing, like our Savior, willing to humble themselves? When that gets really healthy, I'm able to laugh at myself. You, you, we use this phrase, we're comfortable in our own sin. And then perhaps when Cheryl and I have some conflict, and sometimes that's over something trivial, when I'm comfortable in my own skin, I don't have to keep going. I don't have to keep going there to defend myself, to protect my ego at all costs. And other times when I'm fragile like that, I just keep going and it creates, oftentimes creates more distance between us because I say something that hurts her just to protect me. And this, this thing called pride then begins to destroy me. The foolishness that comes out of pride begins to separate the per- me from the person that I love the most on the planet. We can do that with our family. We can do that with our friends. When something goes wrong, we have to blame somebody it must be my spouse's fault, my boss's fault, my kids failing at school. That has to be the teacher's fault. It's the school's fault. It's the school system's fault. It's the way they held, hold, have handled COVID's fault. It couldn't possibly be my fault as a parent. So we can never learn. We can never look in the mirror and get better. It makes us fools when we're full of pride and we do it in different ways. Some of us do it as uh, we have an inferiority complex, so. We've always got our head down and we're worried and yet we're constantly consumed with self. And other of us do it in a superiority way. Like we, we look like we're better than everybody else and we discipline our mind to think that we're better than everybody else. When I was high school, I was so shy. I can remember walking from class to class, counting the cracks in the concrete between buildings. And my head was down. And I'd like to think that that was uh, some form of humility, but really I was full of pride. I was constantly thinking about myself. I was wondering what other people thought about me. So my head was down all the time. I, had in, I, was, I felt inferior. And then somehow it would flip in my mind where I'd actually fight to make myself better than everybody else. And then when I went to college, I I still remember watching this guy walk across the campus. He looked just like me and he had his head up and he, he actually was like, he was cocky. He was looking around at everybody like he was better than them. I'm like, that's way better than what I'm doing. So I just started to walk like he walked. I added a little strut to the deal and I looked people straight in the eyes. I disciplined myself to do that. And, and the next thing you know, I just flipped it. I went from an inferiority complex to, if you can have one, a superiority complex. And I thought I was better than everybody else. It felt better than having my head down all the time, but it didn't solve anything in my soul. It was this deep need to be recognized by man one way or another. So I was constantly reviewing myself. It can get away from you in all sorts of ways. Man, 
I'm reading these passages and we're looking at this story about Haman so that you and I could flee from this ugly pride. Man, well, we've seen our nation be divided over, over people so full of it because they don't know who they are. You and I, based on this passage in Philippians and in watching this story unfold, we know the God who is all glorious, who has every reason to be proud, who actually glory just comes to because of his greatness. And the son is humble and free. And he offers us that freedom. Keller says that pride is just straight up evil. That was kind of strange because I don't think of my pride as evil a whole lot. But then he walked down this list that I thought was really good. Pride creates bitterness. If you uh, know somebody who's angry all the time, get a little older, they call them grumpy old man. Often they're full of pride. They're looking at decisions that other people make and they're saying, I'd never do it that way. There's this constant evaluation. They're, they're constantly calculating their own ego, really. To, and it's real easy to shoot at whoever's in authority at whatever level and say, I would make a decision even though they can't figure out their own lives. I read this story. It was, it was, it was crazy of a, of a man. He was a carpenter and he and his wife, just the conflict continued to grow the division continued to go and he could not be the man of the house and say that he was sorry. He could not close the gap by humbling himself. And eventually, I don't know what kind of saw he does this. He cuts the house, their literal home in half. True story. Cuts the house in half, I'm sure. Then he had to reframe the wall. I don't even know exactly how he did it, but he cut the house in half to keep, he wasn't going to get divorced. Right. Because you can't do that. But in his pride, he never wanted to see her again. Because he could not afford to be wrong. And so that bitterness ate away at his soul. And destroyed him. Some of you are just overwhelmed with worry. Deep fear. Matter of fact, if your friends use one word to describe you, they would say you're a worrier. I'm going to tell you, worry comes from pride. It comes from the idea that you could control every situation. Some of our parents at Radius, that we have been taught to control every situation. And if little Jimmy, little Johnny, if they fail, then that's a reflection on us. So we try to control the whole thing. So sometimes we do that by hiding them away. And not let them be exposed to anything. Sometimes we do that by not letting them drive anywhere in the, in the zip code, much less other zip codes. And sometimes we do that by sticking our head in the sand and hoping nothing bad happens and not participating in their lives in a really valuable way. We do all of that oftentimes because we're proud. And we worry and we can't control it. So the coach has got to be wrong. I need to put a tracker on the car. He's got this long list of things that come out of our pride. It's where racism comes. The foolishness of being proud of our skin color. It's where imperialism comes from. 
Nationalism can get out of control this way to the point where we think of others as less than ourselves. It just doesn't match with the scripture. Nothing wrong being proud of uh, who you are, where you're from, or proud of your family name. There's nothing wrong with that until it flips the script and you can't love others who are outside. Then all of a sudden it becomes destructive and Haman takes it all the way to the end. Let me read you a little bit more. Uh, The king wakes up in his sleep after Haman plans to uh, impale him on a 75-foot pole. Try not to think about that too much. The king wakes up in his sleep that night, and uh, he asks, you you got help all the time when you're the king. He has to help to uh, read him a story. So he goes back into these chronicles, and he reads a story that was recorded in chapter 2 of of Esther about Mordecai uh, turning in two servants. They were actually guards that were going to assassinate Xerxes. So he reads the story. Uh, Instead of Xerxes going to sleep, he wakes up and he goes, what what do we do for this guy named Mordecai? Do we give him a reward? He's got to get a reward. And while he's talking to the servant who's reading, Haman shows up in the outer court, which to me, like if you're watching the comedy, all the tension was in the last chapter when you're talking about a 75-foot pole and you're picturing Mordecai on it and all the Jewish people are wiped out. And here, all of a sudden, in chapter 6, the king wakes up, he's having this dream, and he wants to reward the one who turned in the crooks. And so, the crooks, I mean the assassins. In verse 6, uh, Verse five, it says, so the attendants replied to the king, Haman's out in the court, bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in, the king said, what should I do to honor the man who truly pleased me? And as Haman talks, I can imagine the ancient audience is reading this passage and just straight up laughing out loud. Listen to what Haman says. Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? (laughs) In his own heart, he says. So he replied, by the way, anybody heard the, the song, He's so vain, he probably thinks this song is about him. That's Haman. That's what's going on right now. He's got, this has got to be about me. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, which would mean that the king delighted in him. It seems like this poor, broken, arrogant man wants somebody to delight in him so bad, as well as his horse, the, the conquering king horse that the king had ridden himself, one with a royal emblem on its head, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, someone I'm sure he had in his mind, some noble official that he really wanted to rub his face in the mud, and let him see that that man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse and have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone who, wishes to, who he wishes to honor. And the king says, excellent. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just what you said to Mordecai the Jew. And the crowd, if this was a movie, would erupt in laughter as Mordecai has to go put the king's robes on Mordecai, on me, as Haman has to go put the king's robes on Mordecai, the one he hates, and put him up on the king's horse and then walk through the streets of the town, Susa, announcing to everybody the great pleasure of the king in this servant. It's nuts. As we watch this story of Haman 
capture the idea in the Proverbs that affirm this truth that was spoken of in Philippians, that humility is is super underrated. It's the way God created us to be. He created us uh, to take pride in him. He's the king of glory. And so in Proverbs, he says uh, that pride comes before the fall. Man, I don't know about you, but I've lived that. You see it consistently uh, on the news feed, on the sports feed. You see it on your job. You see it in relationships that pride comes before the fall. And very quickly in this comedic story of Esther, this guy Haman who is elevated all the way to the top as the prime minister, people bow to him as he walks the streets. And now he's walking Mordecai through the streets and people are praising him and his fate is sealed. Esther invites Haman back to another meal. Haman knows he's in trouble. He comes to the meal and Esther for a second time sits with him and King Xerxes and I'm sure they have a similar conversation, but brief, right? As they, as they, start, to, as they start to eat. The scripture unpacks in chapter seven, this interaction. The king is just kind of desperate to figure out why does Esther want to keep doing this? I'm sure he is taken by her personality, by her appearance. He he asked her again, why do you keep doing this? I'll give you half the kingdom. What What do you want? And the queen very carefully comes before the king. As a matter of fact, she starts her her response, if I have found favor with the king. And then he brings up, she brings up the fact that she's a Jew, something that she's hidden for years. Uh, For a significant amount of time, she's held back the fact that she she was Miss Israel, that she's a Jew, and that she's going to be killed because of this purge statement that the government's made. Verse five reads like this, Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous to touch you? And you can imagine him shouting at the table, maybe standing up and slamming his hands on the table. Who would possibly think that they could take out the queen because she's a Jew, the one who he's so in love with? And then Esther replied, verse 6, this wicked Haman is is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen, and the king jumped to his feet in a rage, and he went out into the garden palace. That just shocks me. I don't understand why he went out into the garden palace. Maybe he's trying to figure out how he can save his queen. I'm not sure. I think I would have come across the table and been choking Haman out. I'm not sure why he leaves, but he leaves. And Haman, however, stayed behind. The scripture says, and pleaded for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining. And just as the king was returning from the palace guard, the king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, 
in his own courtyard, and he attended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impaled Haman on it, the king ordered. And they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. How about a little bit of gross comedy where the guy who orchestrated a horrible murder of a humble man, evidently, Mordecai, is put up on his own pole. He's put up above the trees for everybody to see, for the whole town to see what happens when somebody works against the queen of the king. It's, it's, it's a crazy ending to, to uh, his life as he's held up high in a horrible kind of way. God said in Philippians chapter two, he would hold you up high if you're humble. Do you remember the passage? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others, uh, think, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take interest in others too. There's this amazing thing in, in Philippians 2, which gives us peace and aligns us with the greatness of God, which is why we worship. It's why we set out bread and juice every week to recognize the fact that Jesus made us righteous and we don't belong here. I don't have any rights outside of the death of Jesus. But because of the death of Jesus, I can come take this bread and juice as a righteous man worthy in the presence of the living God. Now, for some of us through the years, that started great. But over the course of time, pride seeped back in and we become self-righteous. I'll end with a sad story. I know a lady who uh, this pride, this spiritual, religious pride continued to grow up in her over the course of time. After raising a couple kids and after being really a good, solid lady, it seemed like, in the church and multiple places in the community, all the, 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 she just came off the tracks. She could not afford to be wrong. And so she got divorced. She won't speak to any of her children. Difficult for her to speak to any of her family because she does not want anyone to tell her she's wrong. She can't afford that by the way she's reading the scripture. She actually learned how to make this thing give her permission to do whatever she wants. So when we talk about pride, you can't just put the God stamp on it or the Bible stamp on it because some of the ugliest, ugliest pride on the planet is carried out by religious folks. As they take what God taught them, sometimes it started in a really good way. And then over the course of time, as the flesh began to win on their insides, they began to lord it over other people. And then... Eventually, they cannot afford to be told that anything's wrong because it undermines their identity and religion, not in the living God. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for this book. The story of Haman gets in my business. 
Lord, I'm sorry for the times when uh, all my thoughts are wrapped up in me and I'm selfish. Either worried about uh, what other people think about me or, or not worried at all in the sense that I could care less what other people think. You know me, Lord. You know my insides. And I am thankful, Jesus, for you and for your death on the cross and for giving me a new identity. Jesus, for your modeling of what it looks like to be a humble man and the life that comes from humility. I want to continue to grow that way, Lord. Pray that for, for Radius, that in our community, we would, we would grow that way, that we'd be servants to others. And that even the way we meet and the stuff that we do, that we could have a healthy kind of family culture pride, but not a competitive, down-looking attitude. Keep working on us, Lord. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.